Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, Lori LeBay. And I welcome you to uh, our uh, first show here in 2015. Exciting times, I think, are, are amongst us um, in terms of shifting our dementia care culture. And so I'm really, really excited um, to see what this year rolls out. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations like we do on Alzheimer Speaks Radio, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas and educate people about dementia as a whole and to help those living with the disease, both those diagnosed as well as those caring for them. Everyone in this world should be able to continue to live with purpose and that truly is our goal here. We know there are so many unmet needs and some of the ideas that are sparked uh, by this show and shared are, are pretty exciting. And so we also want you to join the conversation. And the number to do that is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714 Five, seven. You know, and I know that we're making a big difference out there because Alzheimer Speaks was lucky enough to be named the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's by ShareCare, which is the largest health and wellness website in the world, and Dr. Oz. And let me tell you, we didn't do that alone by any um, shape or form. Um, Alzheimer Speaks is, is really a one-man band. It's it's me, Lori LeBay. And so without all of you helping support us by your likes, your clicks, your shares, um, you have really raised this, um, this profile in this resource because um, that's why I, I started it. You see, my mom had dementia for 30 years <clears throat> and not only did, did um, myself and my family, but my poor mother felt very isolated with this disease and we wanted more options and um, and that's why I created Alzheimer's Speaks was really to raise everyone's voice, give everyone equal time so that we can find out what's going on around the world because everybody who's dealing with this uh, deals with it a little bit different. And, you know, we can share that wealth of knowledge so simply by, again, just having a conversation. So, again, I, I thank you so much for for continue, your continued support. And, again, 
is as little as it might seem, those likes, clicks, and shares are critical because there are people in your sphere of influence, your Facebook friends, um, your Google circle, your LinkedIn coworkers that are either dealing with this now or will be in the future and need information. And the more information that that people see, the easier it is for them to reach out when when they're ready. And as we all know, it's all about timing. So um, again, I thank you all for joining us. Today we're going to have two great guests. We're going to start out talking um, with Susan Frick, who is a um, a uh, social worker or uh has her masters in social work and um she works with the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center and she's been there since 1997. She coordinates a variety of their training programs for staff of residential care facilities who work with people who have Alzheimer's disease. She also co-facilitates a program called Without Warning, which we're going to really dive into today, which is a monthly support group for individuals and families um, who live with younger onset Alzheimer's. And this is such a critical need out there. So I'm I'm so glad to... um, be able to bring this program to you. Um, Susan works with patients and families in the Rush Memory Clinic and with people involved in many of their research studies. Um, She received her undergraduate degree in psychology and sociology from Elmhurst College and her master's in social work um, from, uh, what is it, La Jolla um, University in Chicago, and I probably cremated that name. Um, She has presented at many national and local conferences, and we're just really, really lucky to have her with us here today. Um, Susan has worked in the field of Alzheimer's since 87, so she really... She really gets this. Um, she also just got married right after Christmas, and so we have to make sure that we say congratulations uh, to you on that. So how exciting to get get married over the holiday and and come back and start a, a fresh new year. Congratulations, Susan, and, and welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Um, before we get started in, in kind of talking about Rush and, you know, your program without warning, I always like people to know a little bit about you and, you know, if you would be willing to share, you know, have you been personally touched um, by dementia, you know, with family or friends at all? Actually, yes, I have. Um, you know, I'm probably very similar to a lot of people listening to your show. I have um, several family members who um, had Alzheimer's disease or currently have. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked through my church in a nursing home um, and so became kind of familiar with people who were confused, um, you know, at a young age. And even before that, both my grandmothers had memory problems. And I remember as a kid being kind of startled when my grandmother didn't know who I was, um, that that kind of took me by surprise. Um, And currently, my mom has Alzheimer's disease. She's been in a nursing home now, coming up on five years, um, has been on and off hospice for the last year and a half. Um, So, you know, is kind of in the late stages, but still up moving around, still very capable of relationship with other people, even though her 
her verbal skills are pretty limited. So I have. Um, even before I started working in this field, I um, had had family members with it. Okay, so definitely have been have been touched, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that's important for our listeners to know because a lot of times people want to know, you know, someone just coming from an academic angle, <clears throat> you know, when they're talking about this, or do they do they really get it? Do they feel mm-hmm. the need for the change and stuff? And um, mm-hmm. I, I I can imagine that you definitely feel the need as well as coming from an academic. Um, and and medical model kind of angle mm-hmm. with this. So let's talk about Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center. You know, where is it located and and what all do you have there? Right, right. Um we're located in Chicago. We're part of the Rush University Medical Center. Um we are one of um twenty nine, if I have the number correct, uh federally funded Alzheimer's centers throughout the country. Um, I think we're one of the largest. Um, This is actually our anniversary year. We've been in existence 30 years now. Wow. Um, And so, which is a long time. Um, And we're pretty, I'm not even sure the number of staff we have currently. It's well over 100 staff Mm -hmm. members are just solely part of the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center. And we have kind of a threefold mission um, as part of our, of what we do. We are obviously as a research center, very involved in research. Um, We have some of the largest longitudinal studies, which those are studies where we follow people year after year and and go out and see them and have them engage in similar testing every year. Um, And then many of our studies, they agree to donate their their brain and, and some other tissue when they pass away so that we're able to compare how they did while they're living with what we see in the brain, which is a, an amazing gift. We have about 3,000 mm-hmm. people who have agreed to that. Um, and we've learned a lot that there seems to be lifestyle choices that are helpful um, for memory. Um, and so we, we conduct a lot of research for people who are healthy seniors, um, people with Alzheimer's disease, looking at specific medications and, and maybe scans and, and, and testing. And then um, we also have research studies for family members. And so we have okay. an amazing amount of studies um, that were, you know, have grown in the years I've been here, um, which is about 18. Um, and so we have this large research component. Um, we also then have a very strong um, education part of our mission, where we go out into the community and give talks, um, talk about healthy aging, talk about caregiving, talk about what we see about Alzheimer's disease, and then encourage people to be part of our center through research or to coming to the clinic. Um, and so we have quite a few people who they're in this, doing this talk as part of that mission too, um, you know, providing education um, to others. We also provide a lot of education to uh, professional staff working in a variety of settings, you know, um, senior housing buildings, assisted living, nursing homes. I worked in a nursing home for 10 years before coming here, um, which, as you said, is you really see it differently when you're in a nursing home as opposed to solely an academic facility. Um, And um, so, you know, we've had that component, too, of the professional training that we do. And then the third element that we're involved in as part of our mission is family care. And we have a memory clinic here through the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center where people come to be diagnosed or come for follow-up care. And we 
see, I think the number is around 600 people a year, um, 300 new patients and about 300 returning patients who continue with us um, and come to us solely just for the memory problems, not as a primary physician. And then um, through the family care, we also have our support group that we'll talk about later on to the Without Warning program. So that's sort of the um, the main focus of the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center is research, education, and family care. Wonderful. Well, it's definitely, definitely needed. And, you know, I find it exciting um, and sad at the same time that you guys have been there for 30 years and that I know. so many and that so many people I mean I think it's exciting that you've been there and recognized the need for this mm-hmm. um, but I find it sad that still so many people don't know about you um mm-hmm. and and again I see that with with so many of us doing so much all around the world and and the great need for us to work collaboratively to raise everyone's voice so that we can get people the help that they need and and make uh, make it easier for them to mine the resources um, that are so critical to live well with this disease. And you guys are doing such cool things. Um, I'm hoping, you know, maybe when I, when I get to Chicago, maybe I'll be able to come and take a tour there. I think I'm going to be there in March or April or something. So I'll have to coordinate with you and see see if I can maybe come and um, visit one of your one of your groups um, without warning. I would love to be able to do that. Um, why don't you tell people a little bit about why you guys decided to begin a program for younger onset Alzheimer's disease? What was the the impetus behind that? Right, right. Um, we actually started, our group has been going 10 and a half years now um, and has started small um, and has really grown. So when we started, it was very tiny. But, you know, being a, a place where people came to be diagnosed, um, we were seeing people in our clinic. You know, I work as a social worker. My co-facilitators of the group are nurse practitioners who um, are in our memory clinic and, and see people for follow-up care. And we were seeing more and more people who were young in the clinic. And this was back in 2003, even before. 2003, though, was when we really started to kind of decide we needed to do something. And um, there weren't really support groups, and this I think is still an issue around in a lot of areas throughout the country, is there weren't support groups specific to people who were young. You know, and, and I'm sure on your show you've talked about when you think about young onset, you're thinking about people who are under the age of 65, Mm-hmm. And so we were seeing these people, you know, in their um, 50s, 40s. We've had two people in the group who have been in their 30s. Um, mm-hmm. And there wasn't really support programs we could refer them to. There were early stage programs, um, mm-hmm. which are great. Um, but a few of our me- members back early on went to early stage groups and would come back and say, I feel like I'm sitting there with my parents or with my grandparents because the age difference was so much between Mm -hmm. them and and the other participants in the group. Um, And so we really started, um, we had, and the other thing is we had one gentleman who was diagnosed, um, I think in his late 40s, and he was a go-getter and he just kept calling us and saying, what's out there for me? I want to be able to, to meet other people who are my age and who I feel like I have a connection with, I, you know, and, and he kept calling and calling us and, and we were feeling the pressure too of just the, you know, that there weren't 
there wasn't this resource. And um, mm-hmm. so we got together really a task force of a couple people with Alzheimer's disease, some family members and staff from the RADC, as we call it. Um, and mainly we did a, a looked at our people who had come through the clinic in the past year who were young. We had them fill out an assessment of things they wanted, and they were really looking towards kind of an educational day. And so in April of 2004, we had an all-day event. 30 people came, um, and it was educational, but also a support group kind of mixed in. And from that, we started the the monthly group, um, which has mm-hmm. kind of morphed into some more extra groups too. But um, it was really because within our clinic, we were just feeling that there wasn't anything to refer the this group too. And, you know, and I think a lot of the material, I think this is changing in the, t- in mm-hmm. the years, um, but a lot of the material you see for people about Alzheimer's disease always shows people who are older, um, refers to children as adult children, you know, like my age, my, with my mom mm-hmm. having Alzheimer's, um, not really looking at people who might be young kids or, or young adults having a parent mm-hmm. with Alzheimer's. And, so we were just feeling that that needed to change mm-hmm. over the time. Um, so so that's really how it got started was because we had some people who with Alzheimer's who just kept pushing us, but we were also seeing the need within the clinic. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Looks like we've got a caller who might actually have a question already, so let me go ahead and pull <laughs> them in. Um, I've got somebody from a 951 number. 951, you are live and on the air. Did you have a question or comment that you wanted to make? Um, first of all, thanks for having your show, Lori and Susan. Appreciate listening in and talking once in a while. And I'm familiar with the early onset. My wife passed away at 59 last June. So oh, um, sorry. One, one of the points I'd like to make about in her particular case, it was hard for her to see her own mom function and do things like cooking and cleaning. And it was just so devastating for someone at a young age to watch someone older perform and do things that she could no longer do. And I don't think most people in this country realize how crippling early onset Alzheimer's can be. You're right. You know, we sure, and I'm sorry your wife went through that, we sure have seen that in our group, too, where we've had some group members who are brought to the group meetings by their parents, um, which is lovely, um, but I sure hear that from them of, you know, here they can still drive in their 70s, 80s, whatever age, and I'm not able to. Um, and that's hard. You know, the, the pride factor is so big in, in every individual that, you know, they're there's just ways, I'm hoping that your group's working on ways to work with the caregivers to restore that pride with them. And mm-hmm. and while we're on the topic of early onset, I'm sure you're aware that um, Still Alice is coming out pretty soon, which should shed some light on this illness. Right, right. Um, our group, we actually went, um, a theater company in Chicago did a stage version of it a couple years back. Um, we went to see it. It's, I think that is going to shed a lot of light for people. I do too. I, and it sounds I'm like the, the, it sounds like there's a couple of premieres in 
in January, but then it's going to go out to all the theaters in, in sometime in February, but I still haven't heard exact date. So I just encourage people to contact, actually, literally contact your theaters and let them know you're interested in it because um, the more we can rally behind this, um, you know, maybe the longer it'll they'll be able to keep it in the theaters and have it stay. But, you know, they're talking um, Academy Award, and it, it, I think this, this particular film after now alive inside and the Glenn Campbell movie, it's just, it, you know, it just keeps elevating the, the level of awareness out there. So I, I don't think it can do anything, but help the cause. I, I really think it's, it's going to help the cause, but, and I, I heard you mention that you're in Chicago, Susan. I am. Okay. If there's any way you can get down to the Alzheimer's headquarters, I know they're based in Chicago and right work with their media people and say, this is while the iron is hot. The iron is really, really hot right now. They need to start reaching out to all their local TV stations because Julian Moore is going to be on Letterman on Wednesday night. He's going to be on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon on Friday night. So it's a very topical issue. And if they can push press releases and offer themselves to the local media and say, look, we want to talk about this disease. We want to present to you what it's really about. I think it would be helpful. And you could help do that, Susan. That'd be awesome. No, that's a great idea. Thank you. Wonderful. That's all. And, you guys are great. Oh, okay. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's always uh, it's always interesting to hear everyone's ideas on things. And um, again, together, I, I think working together is just a wonderful, wonderful route to be able to be able to go there. So um, you kind of set us up for you know really seeing the need um, from people living with with younger onset, and then um, you know it it almost sounded you know, uh, that you just kind of felt it in your heart, too, that this, even though there might not be a lot of people in terms of numbers initially um, that need it, that this was still something that needed to be done. And, and so you guys, you know, attack this. I mean, when you talk about you've been doing this for 10 years, um, you know, that was way ahead of the curve, way, <laughs> way ahead of the curve with younger onsets. And, you know, it's it's too bad that people didn't, that more people didn't know what it was you were doing because I think there were so many people in the trenches wanting this. Um, but but I think so many people are in denial and even the doctors, well, you know, you can't have that. You're too young. And, you know, that, that myth is repeatedly being broken over and over and over <laughs> that, that mm-hmm. you're too young. It, it can't. It can't be you um, anymore. And uh, but I, I hear that with with people constantly when I'm talking with them. The great great need out there. So I, I think that that's fabulous. Can you um, tell us? You know, what are some of the the different types of needs? You know, you had mentioned kind of the almost from a social context, uh, a younger person. Um, you know, maybe having some of the the same symptoms, but just because of the generational difference, might not be a mesh. Um, and, and anyways, that's how I interpreted that. Maybe that's wrong. Um, no, but no, you, that's, that's that's correct. If, yeah, if you want to go ahead and expand on that, that would be great. Sure, sure. And like you said just a second ago, it is a little unclear how many people have young onset. Um, you know, we really haven't done a good job of 
of trying to to get a grasp on that. Um, you know, I hear numbers here at Rush that like 10% of people diagnosed are young, um, mm-hmm. but that's also taking in other dementias, so frontal temporal mm-hmm. or you know. And so I I often hear the number here about 200,000, um, about looking at about 4% of those diagnosed um, are young um, and mm-hmm. under the age of 65 with Alzheimer's disease. Um, what we were really surprised, and I don't think expected, um, and and I'll get back to what makes young onset different, is how rapidly our group grew. Um, that I think there's been this need out there that as professional staff we haven't been addressing well, um, that there were these people who were young, and they just didn't feel that there was a place for them. And I think that's one thing that makes young onset immensely different than people who get it older is the sense of stigma and isolation that comes about from this illness because, as you said, it can take a while to get diagnosed for some, um, yep. and it can be attributed to a multitude of other things, um, often being depression, um, hormones can get you know thrown in there. Um, you know, they can get referred to a psychiatrist, um, and it can take, you know, um, Sometimes, for some people, many different physicians before they really get a diagnosis of young onset Alzheimer's, um, which keeps people in this kind of limbo, uncertain phase for a long time of trying to figure out, why am I like this? Um, And we sure have had a lot of people in the group say that it was almost a relief when they were diagnosed, that at least then they could say, okay, I get it. I I know what's going on. I had one gentleman in my group say that he was almost appreciative of finally knowing what it was. And his quote was, because now this explains me. It it says why I'm doing what I'm doing. And um, so I think that sense of isolation is just great. Um, You know, I I hear people, I tend to run the group and when we meet for the people with memory loss, one of our groups, we have a couple. Um, Mm -hmm. But I hear all the time that that their um, peers will often poo-poo their memory problems, say, oh, well, I have memory problems too. I'm forgetting things too, where what they're dealing with is far greater. And and that's almost a bit insulting for the person um, is because nobody fully takes in what's happening. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say no one, but, um, you know, that they, they, they will get this impression from people. Um, another thing I think that makes young onset different is since we're ta- we're talking about people at just a phase of their life that you're not expecting memory issues. So mm-hmm. even though the disease might be very similar, um, we do see a few things that seem a little different, um, but it's often very similar. They're just at a different point in their life. And so, you know, they, the, a huge issue for a lot of people is employment. And if they're still yeah. working um, when this comes about, you know, at some point, work is going to stop. Um, and often we see um, that in some cases in our group, people at work noticed the issues before family members did. That, um, yep. you know, there were slips in being able to keep up with technology or being able to get reports done or, you know, just keep multitasking. And and mm-hmm. at home, family members would often see more of a kind of a, a, a withdrawal drawing of the person that they were just tired and they would, you know, kind of come home and crash type thing. And I actually had some spouses say, 
you know, I actually thought we were heading towards a divorce because they just didn't seem as into the relationship, but it was more they were just so tired um, yep. from trying to keep it together at work. Um, so, and then the whole, which I'm sure you've dealt with on your show, the whole issue of um, people exiting work at a young age. You know, some employers do a great job of it. Some, it's it's not handled well. Um, and the person leaves in a in a way that, or is forced out in a way that's very uncomfortable um, yep. to the person. And when our group very first started, I would often use the word retire early, or the phrase retire early. And I remember one gentleman with Alzheimer's turned to me and he goes, this isn't retirement. He's like this, I was forced out the back door, you know, at the, at the stride of my career. Um, so that's a very, I think that's, Leaving work is hard, and then I think finding what is my purpose now mm-hmm. is very hard. I think for some, that's almost harder than the memory issues, is figuring out what am I supposed to do now? Um, I'm, you know, someone in their 50s or early 60s, and then they're home, and their spouse might still be working. So they're home yep. a lot alone. Um, you know, and I think that, that makes it very difficult. And so the financial issues... Um, you know, are, are hard too because you end employment at a time when you didn't think you were, would be. Um, you know, that has changed in the years we our group has been going. That disability is now more easily um, applied for um, through Social Security and it's at least fast-tracked through the system. Um, that wasn't the case when our group first started. Um, but still, it's still a, a financial change for the family. And, you know, what else we see is um, that there's, there can be still either young adult children or um, or young children. I just ran a group on Sunday for four kids who were two in high school and two in middle school, all with a mom with Alzheimer's disease. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where you just don't expect, you know, seventh grade kids to be caretakers and having yep. to be thinking about what do I do for dinner and, and what do I do to help mom out and, you know, that's just different. Um, and so we were seeing this, you know, huge impact to the family. Um, that's that's just um, doesn't ha- – it happens, you know, and I sure see it because with my mom, there's a change in the family when you have someone in their 80s with Alzheimer's disease, but my mom's in her 80s, so it's different. You know, it's not the same. Um, we also see that for some people, depression can be kind of high, Um in particular, the person with Alzheimer's disease, but also family members, um, yep. because there's just so much going on um, that that can be running a little bit higher than what we see in people who are older with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and probably this issue comes up with any age, but um, the the having to stop driving um, mm-hmm. is hard. <laughs> and, and I mean, we see that in our clinic, and I know family members are listening. That's a huge issue of having the person stop driving. But I think when you talk about someone in their 40s, 50s having to stop driving as opposed to someone in their 70s and 80s, it's, it's uh, again, I think a huge kind of slap to self-esteem, um, depression again. And again, I think the social isolation because they just they can't get out as much. Um, well, in, in so much of, you know, what you're talking about is uh, you know, especially here in the U.S., I mean, it, it, we're all about independence and, right. you know, um, having these dreams and climbing these ladders and, 
and then everything is you know the rug's really pulled out you know so mm-hmm. it it's not retirement it, it is it is a forced situation you know retirement was going to be when you know i was going to start really enjoying life and traveling mm-hmm. or do, doing whatever i wanted and and that's not that's not going to be happening Right. In, that, in that in that fashion, and you know, like you said, the the financial crisis that hits the family um, with the the change in circumstances, the the loss of purpose. You know, we're so driven by this this independence, and you know, we're not a society that once was a community. Um, you know, we've we've changed. I mean, I'm 55, and I remember growing up in a community. I don't live in a community sense anymore. Um, you know, my neighborhood is very different from the one I grew up in, and it's people don't know one another. They don't take care of one another. Not to say they're not nice, um, mm-hmm. but nobody. It, it's very different. And so, when you don't have that type of normal, authentic support. Um, talk about feeling vulnerable. I mean, I just can't imagine how vulnerable and scared I would feel um, mm-hmm. by trying to have to put on a show to pretend that everything's okay because the people around me don't want to believe that anything's changed. And right. so we're 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 putting these people in such a pickle, you know, by our own denial. Um, which we don't even realize many times we're doing and stuff. I'd love to pull in Harry Urban. Harry has uh, has uh, dementia, and I know he's got to be bubbling with comments because there's been so many things that I know would be triggers for him. So, so Harry, welcome to the show. And I, I can't imagine that you don't have a comment or two. Um, that I, am, like to I am sitting here. I am sitting here laughing, Lori, because. Um, it, it is so true that uh, people see us and they talk around us. They see us as the person we used to be, and it's so frustrating because they they um, they have their own standards that we have to live up to, and right. we don't live by those standards anymore. They're gone, right. and. Uh, I, I just got into a very lengthy conversation with uh, with some uh, some care partners, and I told them how how demeaning it is when you're speaking about how miserable your life is caring for somebody with dementia, and the person is sitting there. Right. And it it uh, you know well I didn't mean that well you know what that's what we hear. And uh, that that's one of the things I'm fighting right now that um, people just don't understand. Right. And, you know, Harry, we hear that in our group all the time, too, that the person with memory loss just feels that they're being treated different, being not really spoken to in the same way. Um, they often refer to it as they get that look, that they hate that look um, from other people that's kind of just different um, than how they used to be addressed and, and regarded. Um, and I think that's so hard, and we have to figure out ways to change that. Yeah, we we really do. And I think that, you know, the best way is really through the education and the support. And, you know, I, I mean, there was a time, 
you know, when people didn't feel comfortable saying the word cancer or mm-hmm. saying the word AIDS or, you know, and, and so there was really a culture shift that had to come saying, you know what, people have this. We have to talk about this. We have to, um, they, they still should be allowed to live a full life. And we need to figure out how to do that. And so much of what individuals can do to help doesn't cost anything. You know, a, a, a smile, a handout, a, um, and when I'm saying a handout, I mean literally a handout, not, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, it's it's just, it's, it's so, um, one of the things I guess that's frustrated me um, with my journey with my mom was a scene, um, and, and, I'll, and I'll blame primarily larger organizations on trying to make this so complicated that people can't deal with it. And I think we need to chunk it down and get to the basics, um, which is what it, to me sounds like Rush is really doing. It's getting back to the basics of, of relationships and support mm-hmm. and conversation, um, along with the research and the clinics and stuff, but really getting to know and allowing people to be part of the conversation. I mean, you know, Harry is is one of my experts uh, on Dementia Chats, which is a webinar we do where um, it's free to the public and, and, you know, or professionals doesn't make any difference. But um, they can come in and ask people with dementia their questions. And, you know, it's, it's about hearing from the true experts that are living and breathing the disease. They're so full of knowledge if we would just ask the questions and be open-minded enough to know that that they have valuable insights that cannot just help us in terms of dealing with dementia, but in life in general, in terms of how we interact with one another. Um, you know, to me, that's one of the big problems is we we don't even know how to support one another, not just with dementia, but just in totality. <laughs> um, right. We're not we're not very kind to one another. We're not very compassionate, and you know, I I'm I've kind of come to the belief that this disease is here to kind of shake us at our roots and go, you know what, you've lost a big gift in life. And we're going to make you find it again. <laughs> we're going to right. make you, we're going to force you to connect because there's not going to be enough money to fix this um, per se. You're really going to have to pay attention and be part of the cure um, to help people live with the disease. I'm not saying the cure to, to make it go away, mm-hmm. but the cure, the cure of support and comfort. Um right. And, and and that's just so that's just so critical, um, you know, for us to have that that connectiveness there. Um, with your groups right now mm-hmm. um, that you have, without warning, um, how many groups do you have? You know, we actually have three different. Well, we have three main groups that meet, mm-hmm. but within that, there's many different even smaller groups are, um, and and just your comment you made about including everyone at the table and their voice, it made me think about how we even came up with the name Without Warning, um, Mm -hmm. which when we started this back in 2004, um, we had a task force of people with AD, family members, and then staff from the rush, and we were sitting around trying to come up with a name for what this group was going to be. And as staff, we were coming up with terrible names. And, you know, we tend to look at acronyms all the time. And, and they were just awful that we were coming up with. And 
our one um, person on one person on the task force who was recently diagnosed at that time. Um, she was in her early 50s, um, a woman here from Chicago, public school teacher. She came up with the, the phrase um, without warning because she said that's how this disease came on for her was without warning. Mm-hmm. And we were just like, that's it. Um, you know, and so that's how the name came about um, and, and why we've kept it all these years. Uh, the group started originally with a monthly meeting um, for people with memory loss and for family members. And we meet, um, in the, we tried to have it be in the morning because that's often a better time for people with memory loss. And so we meet um, once a month um, and in the morning, it's typically on a Thursday. Um, and we had one group for the people with memory loss and one group for family members. And in the 10 years, and we had maybe, maybe 10, 15 people who would come um, when we first started. And now at our last meeting, last December, we had 82 people at the meeting, which is mm-hmm. extreme for a support group. So within our what we just call the general meeting on a Thursday morning, we break actually into five separate groups. Um, we have social time where we're all together. Um, and then we break into two groups for people with memory loss. And I run one of the groups that is very verbal, just a being able to sit and talk about to the to their ability their um the experience and what's going on for them and it's pretty traditional looking support group um we also have been very blessed from the very beginning to have a music therapist Nancy Swanson who has been part of our program and um she runs a group that's more music based but still very much getting to conversation of what how life is um but mm-hmm. but she's very gifted with um with music um and then we have three groups for family members that meet at the same time and run by nurse practitioners and also a chaplain. Um, And we have a group for people early to the experience, middle and late. Because now that we've been going 10 years, we have people um, who, uh, you know, have um, maybe their loved one placed in a facility. We have people that continue if their loved one has passed away, continue to come. Um, And so we have those five groups that meet at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started to realize, as we kind of talked about earlier, that this doesn't just, you know, we needed something more than just for the person with memory loss and maybe their spouse, but that children are involved in this or, or parents are involved in this. And But we started um, a group for young children, first grade through high school, which we used to only meet once a year and have an all-day event. Now we meet every other month. Um, And then we started a group for what we call uh, adult children, and it's college age and older. And, you know, and that's a tough time where you're thinking about kind of venturing out and beginning your life in a more independent fashion, and then you feel this pull to stay close to your family or obligation or however it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have a group that meets every other month for the adult children too, and, and they range typically late 20s into their 30s and a bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been very blessed through the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center that we, we have the staff committed to running this program because it's not easy to have an, a support group where 82 people come, um, 25 or more people with Alzheimer's disease and then family members. And we've been able to provide this um, free to to um, 
to the participants, which is very nice. Um, you know, they uh, have also been very pro-research, so they've been very, you know, and are huge advocates and do a lot of public speaking about um, what it's like. And so they've, you know, the group has been a huge benefit to us, but also a great benefit for them too. And we sure see that, as you just mentioned, I think being able to have people in community is so important. It it just it provides something that's just unique and different and so needed. Um, and so we've actually started up in the past year, and I know it's on your website, you made reference to it, we've started up a without warning website um, mm-hmm. that we've we've done a lot of filming with our group. Um, and so there's a lot of links for people who maybe can't get to support groups or are out there feeling kind of alone, that they can kind of look at this and, and, and be able to, you know, um, to see that what they're going through is is common to, to the experience. Um, so for right now, we have the three main groups, but kind of many groups within the one. Um, you know, and we've just been, I think, you know, because of being in a metropolitan area, we pull, but we pull people, we have people who come from Michigan, Wisconsin, and central Illinois for these meetings, which wow. I think speaks again to there's something about being able to be around other people who are going through the same thing and understand. Yep. Yep. Very, 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 very critical um, a piece. Uh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to pull Harry in cause I, I think he will, will add a little here on this as well in terms of the importance. Harry, you still with us? Yes, I am. I would, uh, I would like to see a group, Susan, uh, a rehab group. Now, um, if I would have a hip replacement, uh, something like that, uh, one of the first things they would do after surgery is my doctor would send me to rehab to learn how to use my new hip and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think if uh, for people that's been early diagnosed or diagnosed with any kind of dementia, if we could have groups in the concept of a of a rehab group. Now, not a not a group that is going to fix us, not a group that is uh, uh, going to support us, things like that, but a group that is going to teach us how to live with this disease, how to get along with this disease, how to control this disease. Uh, that's what that's what I I try to do with the groups I'm involved in. Is um, we, we we try to teach each other ways to live with our disease. But right, uh, no. a lot of the groups just try to fix us. Right, right. And, you know, that's a, you're right. And which then isn't a pleasant feeling <laughs> if that's what the, the, the main thrust of that group is. No, I think you're right. There are a lot of programs that have kind of cropped up over the last few years looking at at ways to maintain and ways to be able to kind of um, – work in not just support but ideas of how do I live with this and what is the, the you know, what's going to help me at this point and what are tips that, and like you said, not to fix, but to be able to to make, to to have you feel like you're doing the best you can where you are at that moment. Um, and they're, they're, I know in Chicago there's a lot, but they're, but they're not computer-based, that they're not online that people could access from across the country. But they're programs where people get together and and it's kind of like a memory cafe and and get together and and do some things, but then also have some social time together. 
And and within our group, I'd say the conversation that comes about within the group, it's very much based on what you're saying of how do I live with this and how do I handle, you know, our group talks a lot about how do I handle those moments of confusion and try not to get stressed or frustrated or upset when those happen because that's just not going to help. Um, you know, but how do I get through those and, and to the best of my ability? Mm-hmm. Some of the things that uh, that that really concerns us. Now, I'm, I'm talking I'm talking through the eyes of somebody living this disease. Mm-hmm. But we lose so much, mm-hmm. and um, we get so frustrated. Now, if I would if I would lose my hand, my arm, uh, I could be taught how to do things with that loss. Right. Now it, it's the same thing with dementia. Um, we go through. I keep trying to push the uh, uh, the notion that there is life after diagnosis. Your life mm-hmm. goes on. It doesn't end with right. the diagnosis. And uh, it's so important that that you know that even though you can't do something, there's something else you can do, but maybe you can do it just differently. Right. But, right. but so many people don't uh, don't realize that, that uh, I used to be able to do that, but I can't do it anymore. And, you know, the first question I ask is, why can't you do it? Well, because I have Alzheimer's. Well, that doesn't right. do it for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, why can't you do it? If you can't physically do it, if it's a safety issue, I understand. But if you if you defeat yourself and say, I just can't do it, then um, you have to be taught ways that you can do it. Right. And I hear the same kind of theme come up in our group a lot of the the person with memory loss that it, and the family members, that it's this sort of balancing act of, you know, encouraging the person with memory loss and to do as much as possible and not taking away. Because like you said, there's so much taken away. And I think families and friends and the person with memory loss struggle with this, of what is that right balance um, and what, what works best in each individual situation to make the person. I had one gentleman with Alzheimer's say that when he went shopping now, he felt like he was just the person who pushed the cart, that he didn't make any decisions. Um, he was just there. Um, and I think there's, it's it's hard and there's no perfect answer, but I think figuring out how do you keep the person a part of, you know, whatever it is, that friendship, that marriage, that family in the way that they possibly can be. Yep. I think like, I think what you have to do is you have to the care partner has to learn what my world, my new world that I live in is like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like the one that you know. Mm-hmm. Uh you can't uh, you can't assume I know something, you can't assume I understand something because nine times out of 10 I don't. Uh, right. I have a I have a trouble uh, following directions. So if um, if you give me directions and and I screw it up, uh, don't get upset with me because I didn't follow directions. You know, right. don't tell me. Well, I wrote it down. You know, right. I still don't I still don't understand what they are. Right, right. And there might be a whole new way of having to communicate the directions, um, which. Is I think again that juggling game of figuring it out and being open to trying different things. Mhm. Yep. 
Exactly. Well, very, um, I just think it's so exciting what you guys are, you know, what you guys are up to. I just think it's absolutely um, fabulous there. Would would you say, um, Susan, that people who are, are um or maybe I should put it this way. What are the people who are attending your group saying about the group? What what, are, um, they, what kind of feedback are you getting? We get the feedback of they wish it could meet more frequently, um, mm-hmm. you know, which just from a staff time we're not able to. Um, we are seeing, um, you know, there's some people who just being in a group is not their thing. Um, so we mm-hmm. sure have people that, that it's not their thing. But for the most part, considering how much our group, just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. What we find is they they just have this sense of conne- immediate connection. I had one family member say, you know, you come in um, not knowing anyone and you leave with all these friends because mm-hmm. everyone gets it and they understand and it's the place where we can be ourselves. Um, and I think when you're dealing with an illness that's so isolating to begin with, you need those kind of spaces where people just feel okay. And the people, you know, I, I'm i in the group with the maybe about 15 to 20 people with Alzheimer's disease at a meeting, and, and they say, you know, I can make mistakes here. I can um, struggle with coming up with my words, and I don't feel the same level of stress that I feel in other places. Um, and actually, if um, if you people who are able to look at our website, which is without-warning.net, there's a picture on the front of our website that's a boat. Um, and one gentleman said, I love coming here because we're all in the same boat together. Um, and I think they just feel this connection, um, mm-hmm. which I think is common with any support group. But I think with Alzheimer's is just so isolating that you need these experiences. And so, you know, we just, it continues to grow. And so, you know, we're hoping our website can maybe in some way be a, a support to people who aren't able to get to to um, a support group or don't have a program like Without Warning in their area. Um, we're also in the midst of putting together a documentary about the experience because we just feel like there needs to be more out there to kind of help educate the community and professional staff about what is young onset and what makes yep. it different. Um, so if people kind of mill around our uh, website, they'll they'll find some information on on the the program we're looking to put together too. Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, this has just been, I think, great information for people to 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 find out about. Uh, and again, you can go to the Without Warning website, um, just www.without-warning.net, and that link is on our homepage um, for the radio show as well as um, listed on the, the blog page too. So depending on on where you're at and what you're looking at, um, you'll have that. I also put a link to the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center mm-hmm. there too if people wanted more information on that. Um, I so appreciate your time um, with us today and um, love, absolutely love the work that um, Rush is doing and and has been just such a leader in the industry in terms of, of what you're tackling and and how you're tackling it. And so kudos to you guys for that. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for having us on. Yeah. Any any last comment that you'd like to make? 
Um, you know, just we just recently started up a Twitter account. So if anyone for our without warning group, so um, you know, if anyone is uses that social media, it's at without warning R for Rush. Um, and we we have you know that's we're going to be giving information about the group about what we're working on. Um, so we sure would like people to to follow that. Um, no, I I'm just hoping, you know, that I, I appreciate this radio show because I think there's so many things going on across the country that that we're not always aware of. Um, and mm-hmm. I think you know it's our hope that um, without warning can kind of be maybe help other groups to kind of develop around the country and also other people who aren't able to get to a group to be able to reach out to us. On the website, there's contact information to be able to reach the staff at Rush that are part of the program. So even if you're not able to come to a meeting, you're sure welcome to to get in touch with us. And and also your comment, I'm glad you put the, the RADC information on your website. We're always a source if you have questions just about the disease process or about studies that you've heard about. You're always, you know, call and contact us just with questions on that. Okay. Wonderful. Now, I'm trying to find you guys on Twitter, and for whatever reason, um, I'm Hmm. having a difficult time doing that. So I I just want to make sure that I had that right. You said it was without warning? R. And then an R after. um, So it's without warning R, the letter R, for rush. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. There you are. Okay. Did you find it? Yep, yep. Then And yep, that's then very new, up. so we're just starting up that site. Okay, well, I am now following you. <laughs> okay. I just like to walk my talk there, and I thought, well, if I can't find it, I want to make sure that others yeah. can um, as well on that. Well, thank you so much again for all you're doing. And um, when I'm in Chicago this uh, spring, maybe I'll see if I can hook up with you and get a little tour there. I would I would absolutely love that if, if your group is open. Um to have me great. Uh, come through. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and have a have a blessed new year, and uh, and enjoy that new marriage there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Lori. Talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Uh, well, what a fascinating conversation. Before I I bring in our next guest, I just want to do a shout out. Um, to some organizations. Um, The Purple Angel, which is the new symbol for, uh, uh, global symbol for dementia. If you're not familiar with that, I would encourage you to go to um, alzheimerspeaks.com, go to our About page, and there you'll find a tab that says Purple Angel. You'll be able to see how simple it is to be able to utilize uh, that new global symbol. That is something that was started over in the UK. Um, Alzheimer Speaks is the, the national launch site for the U.S. Us here uh, for that. Um, we'd also like you to list yourself um, if you're an organization as uh, dementia aware or dementia friendly, um, or if you have resources, products, or tools uh, or services, we'd love to have you also list yourself in our resource directory, which is free of charge. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere around the world, check out Alzheimer's Disease International. They are the organization of all the Alzheimer's Associations, so not only will you be able to find where other um, Alzheimer's Associations are located uh, for support groups and conferences, But you'll also get some uh, global statistics and and research information and updates on on what is being done on a larger level. 
always like to give a shout out to uh, Healthstar Home Health here in Minnesota. They are just doing fabulous work um, regarding dementia and Alzheimer's disease. In fact, they're certified as an Alzheimer's whisperer. Uh, they've been doing memory screenings. They're opening up memory cafes. Um, they're really getting behind this cause to make a difference, a difference in helping families uh, learn new skill sets and techniques in terms of, of dealing with dementia. The Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation is a great source if you're looking for kind of a holistic mode, um, one where you can get information on diet and exercise and meditation. Many people are dealing with specific types of dementia. And for that, we encourage you to go to uh, those sites such as the Lewy Body Association or the Frontal Temporal uh, Lobe uh, Association, um, or maybe you're having problems with speech. And there's a National Aphasia Association, and aphasia is A-P-H-A-S-I-A, National Aphasia Association. And I would be amiss if I didn't do a shout-out to Alzheimer's Music Connect. Um, so enjoyed their Christmas CD called Memories, the Songs and Spirits of Christmas. In fact, uh, my granddaughter still loves listening to what she refers to as the Boom Boom song. And we still have a lot of fun with that in the car. It is number four so that we can find that easily. Um, but the, if you're not familiar with Alzheimer's Music Connect, they have a, a pending patent technology which increases engagement to the music uh, that they have. Um, so when people listen to this music, they're able to engage uh, with others for a longer period of time afterwards and you know it's so subtle you're not going to know um they have all different types of music um and genres and um so i would really encourage you to check them out and you know if you like christmas music you know you can buy it and have it for next year as well but they also have a uh some sets some individual um cds and then you can also download things in mp3s as well uh then for social engagement, um, some people like to play puzzles, and Jane Snyder's done a wonderful job with puzzles, uh, Puzzle With Me. Um, she designed a puzzle that is uh, smaller, so it's got fewer pieces, more age-appropriate, and thicker, so it's it's easier to handle. And then James Creasy and his family have the Jiminy Wicket program, which is all about... Um, plain croquet um, in an adaptive fashion that can be done with families. It can be done with schools and, and um, memory communities, um, lots of different fashions. Um, so it, it, it really truly can be a nice educational and fun piece at the same time. As far as highlights that I want to um announced, you know, our last radio show, we had Tipa Snow on, who's one of the uh, world's leading educators on dementia, along with J. Joseph Jones of Shared Syndicate um, over in the UK. And they are launching a new project called Where Did You Go? And you can go to that 
uh, and listen to that uh, that episode if you'd like. Um, you can now click on a link. Uh, they have their Kickstarter program uh, going where they want to make a short film and then an hour-long documentary. And so they're looking for some funds to do that. There's a couple of videos that you can watch that will explain that in more detail. Uh, you can also find that information on the blog. That will be um, there will be an article going out a little later this afternoon on that. Uh, our last dementia chats was on the 23rd, and we talked um, on that one about um, adapting as the disease changes along with family dynamics and the importance of social engagement. Our next dementia chats will be on the 13th. And that'll be at um, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, 1 Mountain Time, and Noon Pacific Time, 8 o'clock if you're over in London. And uh, those are free webinars where you can ask people with dementia questions uh, that maybe you can't ask your own family or we just have general conversations of types of change that we would like to see or maybe what, what it is you're doing on the blog, uh, again, we updated the information on TIPA's project with a shared uh, syndicate of the UK and their project called Where Did You Go? So you've got all the links there. I also just saw something today, and I haven't posted it yet, but um, I saw it on one of my colleagues' pages, and it's just a great, beautiful song called Unraveling, and it's by Liz Longley, and it's on YouTube, and it's about dementia, but just a beautiful, beautiful song called Unraveling. If you go to YouTube, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, I also need to uh, kind of give an apology because... I did not do a big uh, whoop happy new year type thing on the blog or uh you know the radio um and I I finally got to writing an article uh yesterday and it was really about allowing um, 2015, you know, allowing the opportunities to change and expand through death and loss. And and for me, I really struggled with that. I lost my mom this year, and I also lost um, a, a family pet that I just adored. And my mom's birthday was was on the New Year's. So I I wanted to write an authentic piece. Um, one that wasn't just about celebration, um, though I believe the piece um, does wrap that in, but really talk about <clears throat> what I was going through and why I needed a little bit more time to, to process things. So feel free to to go ahead and, and read through uh, that article on the blog. Again, it's called... <clears throat> Uh, 2015 allows opportunity to change and expand through death and loss and what I have what I have learned. So let me go ahead and roll into our second guest here. Very excited to have her with us today. We've been coordinating this for some time now. Phyllis R. Brown is a PhD and she's a professor emerita of chemistry at the University of Rhode Island. And she has an international reputation for her research and publications in the field of analytical uh, chemistry. She's written over 200 articles in scientific journals, and she's written five books. Um, she was a scientist um, 
you know, by training. And, um, you know, she's been a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and even a great-grandmother and had nursed her children through all their childhood illnesses. But nothing, nothing really prepared her to be a full-time, long-term caregiver for her husband with Alzheimer's disease. And although a good part of her career was spent writing scientific articles and books and grants and reviews, she'd never really written anything personal. And um, I know how difficult that can be. Like I said, for me, I, I needed to take just a little bit more time to be able to write the last article that I wrote um, because it is a different twist. Um, Phyllis retired and became a full-time caregiver when her husband of more than 60 years developed the disease, um, Alzheimer's disease. And she has written a wonderful book called Help Me, I'm Slipping. So welcome, welcome, Phyllis. So glad to have you with us today. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. And uh, thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, I'm so happy to be here and tell you a little about writing and about my book, which was a, a labor of love uh, yeah. more than anything. Uh, all right. I started out, it was going to be just a brochure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, our, our health coordinator, where I live at a retirement center, said to me, why don't you write down some of the things you did because they were a little out of the ordinary. And at first I said, no, I can't do that, of course. And it was too personal. It was too painful. And then one night I decided, I, I just sat down, I'll put down a few things on in writing. And so I uh, started writing and then it sort of kind of poured out and then I realized I couldn't write about just about uh, what we were doing without telling you a little about us and how 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 it worked what worked for us of course wouldn't work for everybody but it might give somebody an insight into what is going on exactly Exactly. I had to giggle when you said you started writing a brochure and it turned into a book because I think once you once you start, I mean, so, you know, people think, oh, you just wrote a book, but it's it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, I've been talking about doing it forever, and I have all kinds of writing. Um, one is close to go, um, the other one, you know, still isn't put together. But it it yeah. is a total labor of love. And yeah. did you did you find by writing this? Because I, I think a lot of times we don't even realize how much we know. Um, yes. Because it just kind of morphs within you, and it's, there's no <laughs> yes. there's no real formal training. It's kind of trial by error, and yes. um, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this this is valuable knowledge for others. Well, you know, I hope I hope it will be. Uh, I really at first I wrote it for other caregivers to know they weren't alone and things that I encountered maybe they did, but then I I thought. I realized I wanted to inform the other, uh, other, maybe the younger generation, to know what a caregiver was going through. So where could they be of help? Uh, mm-hmm. How could they support this 
this person and what it was like. I couldn't ask for help when I was going through it, but I thought maybe I could help somebody afterwards. Yeah. um, So uh, I started writing. The hardest thing about writing, I think, is uh, making the time, making sure you have enough, uh, uh, a block of time so you don't have to start and stop. And I would start about 10 o'clock at night and go until about 2, 3 in the morning. Um, But it was very interesting because by that time, I was I was alone, and it was the first time in my life nobody needed me. Nobody wanted, you know, I mean, my kids, of course, loved me, and uh, but they had their lives, and uh, I wasn't needed right away, so I could give this time uh, to the book. So uh, I started in putting it down, um, and as I say, it was, a labor of love. It was almost like free association uh, in a therapy session. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it, it, uh, it is very healing to write, and I think a lot yes. of people don't don't realize how powerful that well, really is. Yes. Well, I've always loved to write, and so that uh, this, this was natural. In fact, when I had planned after I retired... <clears throat> not that way, not to be a caregiver, but when I retired, to write a book, uh, books for children to show them that uh, uh, grandmothers could be other than a grandmother, could be a chemist. Or <laughs> My first book was going to be Grandma is a Chemist. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, but I, I haven't quite gotten to that because that's a completely different genre and you write it completely differently. Um, yeah. So... Uh, but I've just finished uh, my second book, which is about my life in science in the 70s when there weren't very many women in science. So I don't know whether that will go or not, but that's completely different. That's more from from the head, and this was more from the heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now... Now you yep. had mentioned, um, you know, when you started writing this, that the person wanted you to to write things because you you approach things a little bit different. Can you can you give us some examples? Yes. Well, one one thing that I found so so helpful, and and I think it was part of my training. Uh, I got cue cards for my husband, uh, for, for both of us, and he and I. Uh, early on, he would it would bother him when I wasn't around. Where are you? I uh-huh. put a cue card and I put down his schedule for the day and mine, so he always knew where he could get me, and he felt very safe that way. And he he referred to those cards all the time. Then after a while, I got so that I put other things on different cue cards, such as. Uh, of the names of our children that he had forgotten. I mean, he recognized their faces, but couldn't put a, a name to them. And uh, places where he had worked or things he had done so that um, uh, it was sort of unified for him. But that cue card as a, for a calendar, he, he just loved it. He referred to it all the time. So that was one of the things. Um, 
another thing is I I I sort of lived after after I thought about it. I lived by what I call the four A's, and I don't know if you read it in the book. Uh, admit, accept, adapt, and adjust. Adjust and adapt. Uh, uh, and it's a different it's a different world with a person with Alzheimer's. Uh, they're going to change, unfortunately, and they're going to go downhill. But most of us don't want to accept it. When mm-hmm. when he was diagnosed, um, my son luckily was with me, and uh, the doctor said, "Your husband uh, said to my husband, you have you have Alzheimer's, Blunk. Mm-hmm. and he didn't say anything." I said, well, what can we do? He said, nothing. <laughs> I thought that was great help. He didn't tell us about any help we could get or, you know, anything we should be doing. And my husband had the good sense to to say, can uh, can I still, should I still drive? And the mm-hmm. doctor said, if you want to. And he said, will I hurt anybody? Will I be safe? He said, well, maybe not, you know, when your judgment isn't so good. And he said, "Okay, I won't. I won't drive again." And mm-hmm. we were so thankful uh, because he loved to drive, and I, we were so afraid that that was going to be a, a real problem. And he never drove again. Never mentioned it. Wow. So, so um, but the doctor uh, was not very helpful at all. Uh, very supportive. He didn't tell us about the Alzheimer's Association. He didn't tell us about support groups or or anything that would have helped a lot. Mm-hmm. So I hope I hope other people don't have that kind of experience. Yeah, so. I, I think it's pretty common. Um, I still hear that a lot that the doctors, you know, they give a diagnosis, they write a prescription, and they say come back in, you know, six months or a year. You know, that's adios. Right. And if they're lucky, they get they get a number to the Alzheimer's Association. But that's really about it. And and so we have to we, get much better. I didn't even know there people. was such a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a scientist. I should have looked up and done some research. But I think I was in such shock that I that I did. I just acted by gut and by intuition, not by by training. So. Mm-hmm. And I hope other people aren't as stupid as I was. In fact, somebody at Laurel Mead, where I live, which is an independent living place, said, oh, I'm going to a support group. Will you come with me? I said, oh, no, I don't need it, Which, but uh-huh. of course I did. Uh, later uh-huh. on, after my husband died, the uh, nurse co- coordinator here uh, started a a support group for caregivers, and she asked me if I would um, be her, you know, work with her. And mm-hmm. I said yes, but I, uh, the Alzheimer's Association gave a course, a very good course, about a three-week, you know, three times, and I learned so much, and I was so sorry I didn't know it before, you know, mm-hmm. about how people think. But... Uh, I wanted to share some of what I had learned with people, maybe to help them 
maybe to make life a little easier. And also, you know, it was interesting. Um, I never did mention, we never mentioned Alzheimer's between us. And and I'm wondering, I thought, thinking back, I realized it was not, was it a good thing? Or would I have done better with him if we had discussed what was going on? But mm-hmm. other people called me and said, you know, their husband or their wife was, uh, their memory was going, and could I talk to them? Mm-hmm. And I realized people were really anxious for for information. Yeah. Now, this was this was uh, back in two thousand and two. He he started to really not feel well about two thousand and one. And then uh, he got diagnosed in 2004, but mm-hmm. he knew something was wrong. He was a very, very bright man, and he knew something was wrong, but he couldn't put his finger on it, which is mm-hmm. very odd. And then yeah. later on, he would say, I'm a nothing. I don't remember anything about, I have no background, because he uh-huh. couldn't remember uh and uh, who am I? And, and then later on, when he was really going downhill, he would say, oh, God, I want to go home. Oh, and I didn't know whether that was he wanted to die or he wanted to go back to childhood or what, but I never could find out. But if I could help some people, even one person, then the book would be worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have you have lots of nice tips and things in here. And in one of the sections, you you talk about, in fact, what is it um, titled? Um, My attempts to survive. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, um, you know, I I'm the kind that uh, you know soldiers on. You don't complain. And, you know, um, you don't cry. And uh, all of uh, uh, my kids would say, Mama, you are right. Can you, do you think you ought to get help? But Bert didn't want any help. And mm-hmm. <laughs> he would. I would hire help, and uh-huh. he would have them sit in the living room, and he would sit in the den. A couple of times he sneaked out on them and went for a walk. Uh-huh. And he thought it was very funny that he could get away <laughs> with them. And he uh-huh. kept saying, you know, I'm not in kindergarten. Um, um, but um, he, um, uh, they, you know, this business of uh, uh, doing it all, and um, I didn't realize I was, there were signs that I was not doing well. One of them was my stomach was a little off most of the time. Mm-hmm. Another time, uh, and and then I I would have back aches, and um, so I I realized that the mental stress was coming out in physical symptoms, mm-hmm. and I tried hard to um, you know go to the gym and to eat right, but you know it was still it was still wearing on me. Sure. So, uh, but I uh, then my doctor, I had a very good doctor, uh, 
said that in her office they were having a psychologist come in once a week uh, for anybody who's under for stress management. Did I want to go see him? Mm-hmm. And I thought at first I thought, oh no, I don't need it. And I said, well, maybe I ought to give it a try. Of course, I have two kids that are psychologists, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but. So I did, and he was very good. But at first, I, you know, I still had stiff upper lip. If if I had been British, you would say I fit right in. Uh, uh-huh. You, you know, I I was lucky. I I had him for sixty years, and he was ten years older than I, so I knew he would go before me, and mm-hmm. um, and I really had had a very good good life. How could I complain? You know, I had a career. I would had four kids that were good. I had a good husband. How could I, how could I complain at 60 years when some mm-hmm. people don't, don't have that? But he got me, that, that was the mind, the head talking. Then he t- got me talking about the emotions that, of course, uh, he was part of me. And, yep. uh, and I was losing him. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I tried. I tried to survive, and uh, it, it, that wasn't easy. But mm-hmm. you've got to take care of yourself, or you can't take care of your your patient. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. well, and that is so critical. And that is one thing that I think is so easy for people to forget about. Um, yes. but it but it is very very critical um piece for self care and yes. and we usually don't know it until we're like cracking into what a mess we are <laughs> you well know? with me with me if i'm upset i eat and i gained 15 pounds in, in the last year or so which i didn't like at all um, uh-huh. <laughs> some people don't eat but I'm mm-hmm. I'm the kind who will nibble, and if he left something, I'd finish it because you know he came to eat less and less, and uh, I knew I knew I was in trouble, but I didn't want to complain too much. Uh-huh. And as I said, I really was lucky, but you still have to handle what's going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But, what what did your kids think about uh, and your family think about you writing this book? Um, a couple of them uh, didn't, uh, you know. Okay, let Mama do what she wants to do. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, two, my daughter and daughter-in-law who are in Boston, both were very interested and gave me a lot of help. In fact, I found. Uh, uh, Linda, uh, uh, sorry, I I I got my Lisa, uh, my publisher, through my daughter-in-law who was in business in Boston, but um, uh, and my other daughter worked with me, uh, went over it. Uh, the it's very interesting. My uh, grandchildren who were teenage, because I had some a little older, uh, thought it was too painful to read. They loved Mm -hmm. the first part about, you know, my early life, but they found the last part too painful. 
although mm-hmm. they were here all the time when when he died and for the uh-huh. funeral. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, because I know sometimes, of, sometimes families think it's too private, you know, to talk about and and things. So I didn't know if you ran into any of that at all or not. Oh, yeah. Uh, Half of them didn't want to talk about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that, but <clears throat> that that's uh, uh, what is lucky, having four kids. So two mm-hmm. of them talked about it and two of them didn't. But, uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, uh, they were uh, they were good about it, and you know, I um, some of them I don't think have mentioned it to me ever. So whatever. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah everybody. Everybody deals with it a little bit different, and yes, and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I was very the- surprised when. One of my granddaughter, a very, very bright young lady, said to me, Grandma, it's much too painful for me to read. I couldn't read it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so yep. mm-hmm. and, and that's honest. You know, there's... That's there's, honest. There's, there's, it's honest. And I can understand. I don't know if when I was 18 or 19, I could have handled death very well or, or degenerative disease. You know, what was hard, Laurie, was that I had never really heard of Alzheimer's. I had heard of it, but I had never known anybody that had it or or admitted to having it. So Uh here I I felt, you know, it was something very new. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Do you find that often? Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think it's normal for us to think it's new when we don't know about it because it's new to us. And so, yes. you know, and and I think that's one of the sad things is that um, so many people, you know, don't talk about it. Um, it it's fear, it's denial, it's lack of knowledge. And, and we have to change that because it makes dealing with the yes. disease so much harder. You know, um, you know what it's like, Laurie? It's like cancer was uh, 50 years ago. They mm-hmm. never said cancer. They said the big C. Or yep. very ill, but wouldn't say it. Yeah. And, and I think uh, ten years ago it was that way with with Alzheimer's. But I think now people like you have done a great job of getting it out into the open. And I think you're doing such a great great service to everyone, and I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I just, yeah. you know, I was on the journey for 30 years with my mom, so more than half of my life, and and oh. and I and, and I knew what a struggle it was for not only myself and my mom, but but our family yeah. and friends. And you know, yeah. you you saw people walk away because they yeah. didn't know how to deal with it. We didn't know how to talk about it. And you know, I, re- I was remember. Was she sick for 30 years? She had memory issues for 30 years. The first 10, the doctors poo-pooed it to hormones, yeah. you know, and and she knew, she from the very get-go said it was Alzheimer's. I don't know how she even knew yeah. the word, um, yeah. but she, you know, she she mentioned that my my grandma had Alzheimer's and, and, you know, went crazy at the end is how she would refer to it. And I said, Mom, I think it was the morphine from the cancer, you know, that <laughs> made grandma a little, a little goofy, you know, at the end. But, you know, as a child, 
parents didn't tell you everything either. And I think that no. that's uh, I think that's also a mistake that we try to hide things because well, I we don't. To... I don't think we do anymore. At at when the last when Bert was dying the last week, um, the last few days, everybody was here, even the great grandchildren, mm-hmm. so that they saw the process. And uh-huh. uh, I I was very proud of my grandchildren for bringing him for bringing them which yep. was very nice yeah and they yeah. were very very you know it that it made it very supportive of me mhm yeah yeah so yeah um, it's 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 very important you know i i go into the schools and talk at times, and um, yes. the kids talk about caring for grandparents or their parents, and they're a little shy about admitting to it in yes. class. And then they're shocked at how many others are doing the same thing. And and one yeah. of the things that they tell me all the time is, I want to help, but I don't know how because they don't really tell me the truth. Yeah. You know? That, that's true. Or what to do. Um, I found that a lot of people didn't visit my husband because they didn't know what to say. Yep. And, and uh, you know, you just you didn't talk over him or under him or around him. You talked to him. Um, yep. And that that's what a lot of people, you know, they pretend he doesn't hear or they doesn't see or something, and they they act as though he isn't there. And then he found he had trouble with the women he at Laurel Mead because they had such soft voices and mm-hmm. he couldn't hear them. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and that, that's important to, um, you know, take into consideration, too. I mean, all, you know, all of that stuff is is just so critical and um, you know, some of it we can adjust and and do so much better if if we're just honest about it. You know, yeah. and it's a very very important stuff. Now you have, um, you know, I I love that you mentioned the four A's, um, yes. the admit, accept, adapt, and adjust, because it yes. it it is about getting out of that river of denial and yes. trying to pretend that something isn't wrong and in people with dementia say that's probably one of the most frustrating things is when people tell them it's fine and they know they're not fine and they know how much energy they're expending to try to appear fine and to try to you know stay in sync with things and you know once we can um, admit that and accept that I, I don't know for you, but for me, I found it very freeing. Yes. Um, yes. When I finally got there, I got great peace, and and most people um, don't understand that. But uh, for yes. me, it was. I, I think you know, and I compare it to you know people that are diagnosed, saying what a weight is lifted once they get a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, they, they don't think that they're crazy anymore, and and I feel I I kind of felt like a, a like it would be a similar weight lifted, like like I was living authentically. I was I was dealing yep. with the yep. truth. Before and, and you I were was, trying to hide it all the time. Yeah, and, or some, and every everybody else was. I I found that there was still people. There was some people who never realized Bert had Alzheimer's. 
because he, mm-hmm. he covered up pretty well. He would, yep. um, uh, and he was in a position where he didn't have to make the hard decisions, such mm-hmm. as driving, where, where which way to go or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it, um, he he understood everything, and I think he had a lot of aphasia, which which bothered him. He wanted to to join in conversations, but couldn't. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be so frustrating. I can't even imagine how frustrating yes. that's got to be. When Especially you're, you're for somebody as bright as he was. It was very, very difficult, you know, mm-hmm. especially if he heard something he didn't like or didn't <laughs> agree with. Sure. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, but there's something else about in writing a book I found that most of the books I've read, especially with an Alzheimer's component, and by the way, one I loved was Still Alice. By, uh-huh. Uh, you, you read that? Yep, yep. And uh, they, most of them had pretty good uh, training in writing, and, uh-huh. and that helps a lot. So, um, And I did have very good good training you know, in college and in my scientific career, although the writing is so different. I, I was going to say got, it's very, what? very different. It's it's a it's a very um, it's a very different application in terms of writing when you're when you're doing your your personal story than, um, oh, yeah. than an, an academic or medical or research kind of based thing. Um, because you have to well, draw. When I first, you know, I went back to school after 20 years and got mm-hmm. my doctorate. Uh, when my my baby was in first grade, I went back. And uh, uh, I had to learn to write all over again because I would put in, oh, it was a lovely mustard green. <laughs> they said, <laughs> say green. <laughs> I would have all these adjectives, you know. <laughs> Which yep. didn't belong in their, their writing. <laughs> yes. Oh, so, yeah. but uh, so, so funny. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, now, I, I, you know, it, when you wrote your book, who did you feel your primary audience was going to be? Was it going to be uh, care, um, caregivers? Oh, okay. Yeah. And and were were you targeting? Spouses specifically, or just families in general? Well, I, because of my my experience had only been with with spouses, it was uh-huh. uh, targeted to spouses. And then I realized people uh, the same thing could have could apply to uh, um, other members of the family or taking care of parents or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had had no Alzheimer's that I know of in in either family, so it was hard to uh, um, you know to put my hands around. Now with the four A's, I think admitting was very very hard and accepting because I I at first thought no he had minor strokes. And if you have minor strokes, then you don't get any worse. But mm-hmm. 
I, that's why I, I sort of kind of pushed the Alzheimer's diagnosis away. Uh-huh. And it wasn't, of course, it wasn't true. And the other one was uh, accepting it. it. You know, you didn't want to accept it. You wanted to, um, uh, you wanted it not to be true. Yeah. Whatever, what, what, whatever anyone said. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, adapting uh, and adjusting. It was very, you know, once I came to that realization, life was easier. Mm-hmm. And as long, and, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, you remember if you had babies and they took two naps a day, then all of a sudden they were ready for, for one, but you didn't know it, so you try to make them take two, and they uh-huh. didn't want it. And uh, with an Alzheimer's patient, it's that way, trying mm-hmm. to make them do what they're not ready to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, another thing, uh, Laurie, I found, we had a great-grandchild who Bert adored. Uh, he was born about a year before he died. And his behavior, his learning, uh, Bert was on the other side of the hill. Whatever he learned, it seemed Bert was losing. It mm-hmm. was so interesting to see that with with language, with, uh, um, uh, say, uh, with forks and knives and spoons. Uh, uh, Bert had such meticulous manner, and all of a sudden to be eating his soup with a uh, with a fork, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but it was so interesting that side of the hill, and if you did, you accepted it better. Yeah, so, it, but it, it you really learn, um, you know that that whole piece about the the acceptance and you know becoming it, flexible and adaptable. That you know there there is more than one way to do something, and we have these. Silly in a lot of ways standards that yes. you know to me it really made me realize wow how in a box we've put everybody to be perfect and to to hold to these standards that really aren't going to matter they're yes. not going to harm anybody if we do it a little bit differently um, no, you know right. but, but it but it's this embarrassment that we're not doing it the way that we've been it's, told um, yeah. that we have to do it. And and I remember, you know, I remember my daughter being, I don't know what grade, maybe fourth or fifth grade, and she was struggling with math. And she would come yeah. home and she'd try to do her math and she couldn't get her math. And I'd say, honey, well, let's do it this way. No, we have to do it this way. And, yes. and I'm like, you, no, I can show you four different ways to get the same answer. No, Mrs. So-and-so said we have to do it this way. And she was horrified um, and so angry at me. And I remember meeting with the teacher saying, would you please, please let her know there's more than one way. It's I mean, because it was it was so degrading to her because she couldn't do it that way. It just, it didn't click with her. And, and yet she was so empowered to be able to do it another way. And, and we don't, we don't realize how 
um, undignified and how much we're stripping people of their personal power by trying to make them stay in the same box when we just yeah. need to adapt things that, again, it's not going to harm anybody to do no. it differently. I I have a, a grandson who who is ADHD, and uh, he could do math beautifully, but he did it uh-huh. his way, not not the school's way. And he always came up with the right answer, but they didn't like it either. So uh-huh. we knew that. Yeah. But uh, with the four A's, yeah. Uh, uh, also with the sleeping, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as as time went on, he slept more and more. And of course, you know, you tried to stimulate him. He didn't need stimulation at that time. He needed peace. Mm-hmm. Because, yep. you know, the deterioration of the brain, uh, you know, he couldn't cope with everything. And sleeping was a way out of it, I think. Well, and and that's that's nice. Um, I, in fact, I'm going to pull in uh, Harry Urban, who uh, is living with dementia. And one of the one of the most brilliant statements that I, I heard Harry say was, you know, I like to relax before I got the disease. I still do. You do not have to keep me busy all the time. But as care partners, sometimes we feel like we're we're supposed to. We don't know. We're we're even more uncomfortable with that silence and stuff. And Harry just wrote. In the chat box, he says, I'm waiting for someone to write a book titled The Mistakes I Made Caring for Someone with Dementia. And what a great title. Um, (laughs) The Mistakes I Made is true, you know, because how do we know? How do we know? Um, You know, you knew. It's interesting. At the end, I felt. I wasn't, it wasn't my husband, it was a young, uh, a child, a very, very vulnerable child I was taking care of, and he had been so strong and so bright, you know, that that was hard. Yeah. Now, Harry, are you with us? Yes, I am. You are? Okay. Um so my guess is that that um, you might have a few comments that you want to toss in here on, on regarding the conversation here. Anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, one of the things that uh, that a care partner has to learn is um, we live in this disease. We want to talk. We want to talk about the disease. Uh, we want to we want to talk about the fears. Uh, that go along with this uh, this disease and things like that. Not that not that we want to uh, tell you how bad a life is. You know that already. But just so you explain, you understand some of the things we are going through. And so many family members don't want to talk to us about that. They, you know, they 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 say things like, uh, uh, "Don't talk that way." You know, we'll talk about that later. You know, yeah. um, we may not have a leader. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's time when I when I want to talk about something. Uh, five ten minutes later, I may not want to talk about that. So mm-hmm. you better take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, um, and, and while you can still talk and 
and and have a good conversation. Um, it, it's a it's a mistake a lot of us make, you know, because it's hurtful, you know, to think about it. So they don't want to talk about it. But mm-hmm. uh, if I had to do it over again, we would do a lot more talking. And thank you for that comment. That was it was good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Harry always Harry always has good information to add, uh, you yes. know, for this at all. Um, yes. Harry, Harry, what do you think are um, you had mentioned about some mistakes? Um, what are some common mistakes that you hear people make in terms of caring for somebody with dementia? What What is so interesting about that, Lori, is uh, so many people make the statement, well, if I had it to do over again, I would have did it different. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, what would you have done different? But nobody talks mm-hmm. about that. And, and and it's really strange. Now, from, from my point of view, I can see that things now, in my family, we're very open about my disease. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about it. Uh, and and there's no there's no stigmas in my family about this disease at all. Uh, unfortunately, everybody's not like that. They they don't like the they like to shelter the kids and and protect the kids from the uh, from the badness of dementia and things like that. But you can't do that. I mean, it, it, yep. it's there. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd really be interested in 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 learning some of the things that caregivers care partners would do different. Um, oh. I think that'll well, be a one great of them is talk is talk better, talk more openly, uh, as you mentioned. Um, I think our generation was taught, and I am ninety, um, not to not to discuss any anything bad. So, uh, and it's wrong. Okay, um, what else would I do differently? Uh, that that is the main thing. The, the other thing I see with other patients and uh, caregivers is uh, they need they need a um, uh, love and attention as much as they did before, not less. They need you know to know that they're loved as they are, that mm-hmm. it, they're still the same human being. We also yeah. need quiet time. We we but, need we need time to ourselves. Uh yeah. like like so many times so many times I might be just sitting in a chair and I'm bomb I'm bombarded by questions. Are you okay? You feel okay? And it's it's just because I I went back into my safe place. You know, a a place where I feel safe and I'm trying to I'm trying to understand my life. That that's mm-hmm. basically what it is because I don't know what's going on. And uh, uh, you, you know, so many people in, in my in my daily blog, I I usually put down my thoughts on dementia. And um, what so many times somebody writes me back and say and, and told me, you know, my my husband, my wife, or whomever um, did that. And I never understood why. You know, I thought maybe he was mad. He was mad at me uh, because he would sit in his chair and he was quiet. 
you know, things like that. And there's so many things that, little things like that, if if you would talk to the person living with this disease, you would understand why we do the things we do. Sometimes, unfortunately, some, uh, uh, it depends on what stage of Alzheimer's, they can't, uh, they can't express their thoughts, which is hard, because when my husband used to say, oh God, or I want to go home, I didn't understand what it was he wanted, and if there was mm-hmm. anything I could do about it. That's an excellent, that's an excellent point that you're making because we don't know how to communicate with people with dementia. That's why we're starting up uh, teaching people in the early stages sign language. Just basic sign language that uh, they can communicate with, like pain, you know, things like that. Just simple simple things that they can learn and the care partner can learn. So when that stage comes where they can't verbally communicate, that you know. they can communicate that way. Oh, that, that that would have been great because uh, it was very difficult to tell if my husband was in pain because he couldn't couldn't verbalize it. And mm-hmm. there were times I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And it's very difficult to deal with it if you don't know what it is. Yeah, it, well, just a very, simple, very just a simple so. thing like uh, like my feet are cold. Yeah, you know, because somebody with with dementia that could be a major problem, and nobody yeah. knows what they what they're talking about because the person living this disease doesn't know how to communicate that. Yeah, so you don't yeah. know. And then yeah. if you could have if you could learn the language of dementia. Uh, yeah. Then you know it's a simple thing. Well, his feet are cold. Yeah, yeah. My husband had a very bad sore on his on his heel, one heel, and uh, it took us a while to realize how terribly painful it was, and and try and get you know footwear that wasn't irritating it more, and it was very very difficult. Yeah, I I think you're right. I would would I wonder how the dementia would affect the sign language. Well, yeah, we're doing I, it now. Yeah, yeah I we're doing it now. We uh, we're, we're bringing out videos and teaching uh, teaching people how to do basic sign language. Yeah, and, like uh, this, this is this is one of my this is one of my pet projects that I'm really really okay. interested in, uh, and, and you know what, everybody can do it. You yeah. know, you would you, know you would be surprised how many language how many sign language you use now, like cold and thirsty and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting. They're teaching babies, so before they can talk, they use can recognize certain signs. Uh, yeah. Some of my latest grandchildren were taught sign language. Isn't oh, wow. that interesting? Thank you. That was very, very interesting. Very good. Well, thanks, thanks, Harry. Um, I want to get back uh, and just um, ask uh, Phyllis a couple of more questions here. Okay. We just have about no. five minutes left. Um, one is, what was the hardest thing for you to write about, Phyllis, in the book? 
the end, mm-hmm. uh, what I was going to do next, because mm-hmm. the rest of it had happened, and I didn't know what was going to. Nobody, no. It, it, it's a terrible feeling to feel that nobody really needs you. You know, the kids are grown up and have their own kids. Um, and and they need you in a way, but not the everyday need that a caregiver or a mother is. Um, yep. That was, I think, the hottest. The other hottest was the first time getting going. Um, mm-hmm. Where did I start? And once I could get started, it slowed, and that's mm-hmm. why I would I would write until. Two, three in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. But those were the hardest things. Um, the rest of it, I was glad to remember and to put down. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I can relate to that. I, I remember when my dad passed, and and yeah. I was caring for him and my mom, and yeah. I I didn't know who I was anymore. And so no. I, I didn't know what I, I liked to do. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do anything I liked to do because I didn't have time. And and so yeah. it really is um, a, a coming to grips with who are you now? You yes. know, because yes. um, I used to have my job to define me. Uh, I had my husband to define me. I had my children, and all of a sudden, I was me, just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I did do, but it took me a couple of years, was uh, I sold my bigger uh, apartment and got a smaller one. And mm-hmm. it was the first time in my whole life that I decorated an apartment all myself. Because uh-huh. I had gone from my father's house to my husband's. Okay. And that was, that was very, very good. And I love my small apartment. It's uh-huh. like a cocoon. It's uh-huh. yeah. And as oh. I said, I I've written another book, um, mm-hmm. which was very which is very different because it didn't have any of the emotions in it. It had more, okay. uh, you know, what life was like as a woman scientist. Okay. So it was it was fun, and hopefully it'll be out in about a year. Uh-huh. So maybe okay. you look for well, it. Uh, the name of the book is Life with the Boys. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. That's a good, good, good title. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I love, in, I love in the back of your book too. Here, the the one um, help me. You know, I'm slipping. You've got just some general strategies and tips for people, and and yes. they're very simple, but they're really powerful. You know, keep your yes. sense of humor. Be patient and calm and non yes. um, yes. non um confronting with people um yes. you know it just uh, you know talking in short and clear sentences um yes. yeah you know taking time for every activity don't rush it yeah um, you have to take much more time mm. yep maintain yeah. their dignity i mean and if we just put that first if we if we think i mean because we we go through this world so fast a lot of times we don't even think about dignity we just we're so task oriented um yes. you know but that allows us to show them respect and yes um keep well, them when, uh, well one of the things i did 
and, and I did mention in the book, they wanted to put him in a Johnny's that last week when he couldn't talk. And I uh-huh. know he hated Johnny's, so I insisted uh-huh. that he stay in his pajamas for his own dignity so uh-huh. that he looked he looked um, like himself and, you know, not like a patient. Yeah. And that was my way of showing my respect for him. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, another I, thing, I, yeah. Yeah. Another thing can... is he sat next to his pictures of his, the Navy, and he uh-huh. didn't care about any of the middle of his life, but the Navy was very, very important to him. Uh-huh. So it, oh, it, that was interesting. Yeah. Nice. Now, we do yeah. have on the website, because we just have a little under a minute here left, um, several different links to be able to go. And, again, you can order the book um, at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Um, there's some information on uh, press releases and SDP Publishing, uh, who helped you through the process uh, with Lisa, which was absolutely great. And, again, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your story with well, the world. Well, thank it's, you it's so powerful. much, Laurie. It's like talking to an old friend, and um, uh, good luck on all your projects, and, and I wish you good luck, and may you keep keep helping other people the way you are. Okay. So thank you. Have a blessed what? new year, and, and same to all of our audience. Thank you so much for joining us. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.